And you know, it's because on some level that we have heard and continue to hear that word speaking to us that we gather here this morning. We come as an expression of our desire to continue to hear that word spoken to us, not a word that's printed on a page, and not just a word that is uh, composed of sound waves in the air somewhere, but one that has come to us in human form and has made its dwelling among us. It's exactly what we've been celebrating for the last several weeks as we've been involved in the Advent season. And yet, because our lives are often so cluttered with so many other words and voices and images and sounds, some of which seem to have also made their dwelling with us, some so loud and obvious that we couldn't miss them if we wanted to, and others so subtle and quiet, we hardly even notice they're there or the way that they're shaping who we are. God's word can too easily get drowned out and lost track of in the midst of all the others. And so when we come this morning, we come not only desiring to hear God's word speaking to us, we also come longing for discernment, that ability to be able to pick God's voice out of all of the other sounds and voices and noises that seem to fill our lives. For the past several weeks now, we have been immersed in sights and sounds Stories and messages that all revolve around Christmas. Heavenly choirs, angelic visitations, magi from the east following the star, and the clear, direct message of good news, of great joy, that is intended for all people. Somehow in the birth of this baby, We believe that God is indeed with us in a unique and powerful way and that God's grace and favor actually does rest on all people. But then we find ourselves here, this Sabbath, the Sabbath after Christmas. By now the shepherds have all returned back to their fields. Magi are on their way home. The concerts and the special programs are pretty well over. And as may already be the case, or soon will be in our own homes, the decorations and the lights come down, and things are carefully packed away until next year. The Christmas season comes to a close. And so then we have the question of then what? So where do we go from here anyway? As we look forward to the beginning of another new year, that last little bit of festivity before the end of the season that we're in, do we then pack up this good news of great joy that's supposed to be for all people and carefully stow it away until next year? And if we don't, how do we take it with us then into the new year? Without angelic choirs and bright stars lighting up the night sky, and for shepherds and and magi at least, drowning out all the other voices and soundtracks. What does it really look like now, as we live in the wake of the Christmas story, to remain attentive and responsive to God speaking, especially in the midst of so many other voices? I have to wonder if you're hearing any voices at all this morning. Have we lost the system at all today? 
we need to do something different here. I don't know, we'll just keep talking and I guess they'll figure it out at some point. So we have a mic over here that works, okay. Okay, let's try that. See if we got something here. Maybe we do. Okay, we can hear, I, it, it's hard to tell from where I'm standing. I guess the important things actually still get heard in spite of it all. Uh, it, it's a wonderful power that you have when you're sitting in a sound booth or when the things, anyway, we'll just move on. <laughs> But the question is, so, so what do we do now? How do we take this with us into this new year that comes after the Christmas season? How do we take the message with us? Because the truth is that for Mary and Joseph and for Jesus, and for the rest of us as well, the journey that they were on did not end in Bethlehem. It only began there. In fact, when we begin to think about what life actually does look like for Joseph and Mary and Jesus after Christmas, it's almost startling to discover that there is another 30 years or so that elapses before the official ministry of Jesus ever begins and the next series of events occur for which we then want to take out decorations and hold special services. What about what all is going on in the meantime? What about all of those years? What about the vast majority of Jesus' earthly life in which he grew up? became a young adult, in which Mary grew older, and in which Joseph lived out all of his years. What about all of that time and life that was lived in between the major events that we celebrate? Does any of that count for anything? Or is it just filler in the story, you know, like the packing that we put about the Christmas ornaments when we put them back in the box till we're ready for the next celebration? What I'd like to invite you to consider with me for just a couple moments this morning is that part of the story that we usually don't give very much attention to, but which in the end may have quite a bit to say to us, more than we might first realize. A part of the story where as we trace what little we know of the life of Joseph, we actually catch a glimpse of a pattern of living that starts to emerge there but which, because of the way our culture tends to shape and condition the way we think and how we see things, we're very likely to miss, and it will slip by unnoticed. In one of the books that he wrote a number of years ago, uh, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, uh, has a, a short passage I'd like to share with you. It comes from a book entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he talks about some of the reasons why this sometimes happens to us. Let me share with you just his thought from the book here. The assumption is, he writes, that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is, however, terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. In our kind of culture, anything, even good news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship 
and what earlier Christians called holiness. Everyone is in a hurry. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. What is needed, however, he says, is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Last week, as we listened to Mary's song, we got a feel for the shape that her response took to everything that was happening in her life. But this week, as we trace the journey of this family through some of the passages that give us some insights into Joseph's response, we see a pattern of life emerging that I think is captured pretty well in that phrase. A long obedience, or perhaps a word that sounds easier to us, or is more accurate maybe, a long responsiveness in the same direction. A phrase I'd like to suggest that might carry far more significance for us than we might first think. Well, we catch our first glimpse of this this morning at the very beginning of their journey together. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to join me there. You'll find a Bible in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow, if you didn't bring your own. The very beginning of their story, which begins in Matthew chapter 1, right around verse 18. This is where Joseph first learns that the future that he and Mary had planned together is simply not going to happen the way they had dreamed. Things were changing. And we begin reading in verse 18 with this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of all of the inner turmoil that that must have created for both of them, which we won't take the time to try to unpack this morning, Matthew then goes on to tell us a little about how Joseph was trying to process all of this, how he tried to make sense out of what he was hearing, how he tried to figure out what the best thing to do was. And in verse 19 we read, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And you know, I think it's worth pausing just a moment there and noting that given the culture of that time, especially when you consider all of the options that actually were open to Joseph and which he would have been urged to have taken, when you consider all of the mixed emotions that must have been going on inside of him, or a set of circumstances that he was not responsible for, a set of circumstances he could not control. It is amazing to me that Joseph responds primarily with compassion. With compassion. He does what he can to shield Mary from the scorn of others, to minimize any sense of shame or disgrace that he knew would be her experience from this. He does what he can to show compassion. Isn't it interesting in this passage that being a righteous person is equated with treating even those who you believe have hurt you, even those who you think may not have been entirely faithful to you, with a sense of graciousness and compassion? Very intriguing way to define righteousness. 
And we could spend a lot of time on that here alone this morning, but the story continues and, and we'll move along. Verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So even as we see Joseph now settling into his decision to maintain a compassionate, gracious attitude towards Mary, which was a lot in that culture and a lot in those times, God speaks to him in a dream and decides that he's going to stretch Joseph even farther, assuring him not only, as incredible as it sounds, that what Mary has told him is indeed true, but also that his own story, which he had been mourning the loss of, was actually now part of a bigger story, and he was now invited to participate in that story. At which point, Joseph realizes something that becomes central to his life and the pattern that we want to look at this morning. Joseph realizes that it is not his own individual story that the whole world revolves around, but that there was a much bigger story that the whole world actually did revolve around that he is now invited to participate in. And that was an incredible thing for him to realize. Despite all of the insinuations and the ridicule and the indignities that he knew they would face from those around them, Joseph decides that the bigger story he's invited to be a part of is more important than his own individual story. And he responds, establishing a pattern that we will continue to see now surfacing over and over again in Joseph's life. That of someone who desires to honor God in the way they live, who sorts things out as faithfully and graciously as they know how, and then remains open to God's guidance. And when God gives direction, he receives it and responds. Joseph literally marries the bigger story declaring that come whatever may, however his own smaller story might be impacted, he is now in it for the long haul. Well, we can see this pattern emerging once again just a year or so later when in Matthew 2, we read the story about Joseph and Mary and Jesus who are now living in a little house in Bethlehem. Pastor Dan talked about this just a couple weeks ago because it was there that the Magi finally caught up with Jesus and visited him with their gifts. They had now settled into a home, it was just a few miles from Jerusalem, and we can be pretty sure that since a year or two had passed by by now, that there had been lots of opportunities for Joseph and Mary to talk together about just what it was going to mean for them now to be the parents of this child. Can you imagine the conversation of what it must be like to think that you get to raise the Messiah, the promised one? How do you do that? How do you provide for that child what they need? And so it probably made sense to them that they would be close to Jerusalem and the temple and all that was represented there so Jesus could be constantly surrounded with the things that were a part of his heritage. But once again, their lives take an unexpected turn. Shortly after the Magi leave, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells them that Herod is now seeking the child's life. And they were to drop everything leave what they had established there, 
their new home, whatever other plans they had made, and head for Egypt immediately. Which not only was not exactly the first place that they would have chosen to begin this project of raising the young Messiah, we talk about being stretched, but it also meant leaving behind everything else that they had probably worked to establish for those two years. But once again, Joseph faithfully responds. He packs up that night, and by morning, they're on the road. Well, as it turns out, they're not in Egypt really all that long, maybe a year or two, when after the death of Herod, Joseph again is visited by an angel in a dream and told it's time to go back to Israel now, to return home. But interestingly enough, where he goes back to is not Bethlehem, it's not Jerusalem, where you would expect the Messiah to go if he was going to now grow up and, and be raised in the heritage of his fathers, but to, of all places, Nazareth, a place whose name literally means despised. In fact, you'll remember later when one of the disciples, Philip it is, is talking to one of his friends about Jesus. Nathaniel responds by saying, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You've got to be kidding. But as odd as it may have seemed to the parents of the promised one, Joseph again responds to God's direction. And it's to Nazareth that they go and make their home. And by the way, I think it's worth noticing here that Matthew actually goes out of his way, even quoting Old Testament prophecy to make sure we don't miss this, so that we see that there's a lot of significance to these two places, to Egypt and to Nazareth. He reminds us that the people and places that we might have come to think, for whatever reasons, should not be included in our stories. Maybe the very ones that God is quite intentional about including in his. God's story is often much bigger and more inclusive than our stories. Well, the final place that we get a chance to kind of get a glimpse of Joseph is in Luke chapter 2. There we find he and Joseph and Mary, now some 10 years later, Jesus is about 12 now, traveling on their way to Jerusalem. It's Passover time, they're going up for the feast. And this time they're not making this journey because of any great upheaval that had happened in their life that they were trying to sort out, and not because they were running from a king that was, that was threatening their lives or trying to do them harm. But they're going because they want to. It's an enjoyable journey. They're traveling with friends. They're going up to the feast, and Jesus is going to have the opportunity to be a part of the festival, to be exposed to all that the temple stands for, all of the richness and grandeur that's involved there, and to connect with his heritage. And it looks like that for that part, the trip goes pretty well. It's on the way home that after about two or three days, they discover that something is not right. They're looking around and that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And any of you who are parents can imagine what must have been going on in the hearts of these two at that point when you look around and realize that you don't know where your children are. Jesus is not there. You talk about the anxiety level going up. But even with parental anxiety aside, I suspect that there are times when most of us can think of when we too have been involved in something with others and we suddenly realize that somehow Jesus has clearly not been a part of this for quite some time now 
and it feels just about as bad or as embarrassing. Well, you know the story. Once they realize what's happened, they quickly begin to retrace their steps. And after three long days, they find him. He's sitting in the temple, chatting with the rabbis, asking them, actually, questions and making suggestions that were stretching them in ways that they had never been stretched before, things that were opening before them that they had never thought about, some pretty amazing stuff going on in the temple. Probably none of which, however, as we can readily understand, was fully appreciated by his parents at that moment, who were not thrilled that this is what Jesus had been doing for the last three days. And with their own parental story capturing all of their attention at that point, Mary comes to Jesus and says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus responds like this. And listen to what he says. Why were you searching for me? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And as annoying as that probably was to two parents who probably felt like they had been stretched enough for one day, Jesus reminds them once again that there is a bigger story in play here a story that he and they have committed their lives to. And it actually may have given them a lot to talk about on their journey home that they wound up taking together after that. But you know, the good news is, is that with all of our inattentiveness and all of our anxiety that we see reflected in, in Joseph and Mary's reaction, and even in all of our religious and political and philosophical ideas that may have been being debated by the rabbis, things that can cause us to get so absorbed in what we think our own stories are that we lose track of Jesus and his story. He is really not that difficult to find again. We simply need to circle back, get the bigger story in focus once again, and when we do, we find that he's right there, still very much at work, and inviting us now to come and to be a part of his story. Our own stories may not go exactly as we had planned, but we get to be a part of his if we want to. And so as we watch carefully the way his story unfolds over the 30 years they spent together as a family, we are reminded that living in the wake of the Christmas story does not mean leaving any of it behind. Nothing needs to be packed away carefully and kept for another occasion. Rather, it means taking all of the things that we have talked about in this Advent series and before it and bringing them along with us. The sense of expectation that Pastor Chris spoke about the first week, that attentive listening posture in which the record of our own stories is kept from drowning out God's story. The openness to repentance that she talked about the following week that willingness to work with God and building the highway that Isaiah spoke about that connects people with each other and opens the way for God's agenda to move forward and for his story to flourish. The willingness to respond to God's leading that Pastor Dan mentioned, even when it takes us outside the confines of where we're used to living and our own comfort zones and our own stories and stretches us to think about what it might mean to become a part of his. 
And as we heard in Mary's song last week, doing all of this not with a spirit of superiority or of conquest or of domination, but one of humility and grace and generosity, realizing that we are people who are as much in need of grace and deliverance as those we hope to serve, all of which we find reflected in the life of Joseph and Jesus' family as they continued to live a life that was characterized by living with discernment, the ability and willingness to listen carefully to where God was leading in the midst of all the other noise that was going on around them. Responsively, faithfully, usually without fanfare, because they wanted to be a part of God's bigger story. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience, a long responsiveness in the same direction. A kind of life that is evident not just in special occasions, but one that was lived out faithfully every day of their lives with their resources, with their choices, with what they invested in. Even if, as was Joseph's case, you might not live to see the full unfolding of the story that you were so invested in. See, the life we live in the wake of Christmas and the reason we have Emmanuel, God with us, is not so much about God coming and being a part of our little stories. It's much more about him coming and inviting us to become a part of his story. And that's a very different thing. And so perhaps the greatest longing the Advent season should awaken in us is the longing to actually be a part of the bigger story. The one that continues to proclaim good news of great joy to all people even those people we don't think should be a part of our stories. One that is proclaimed through all the days of our lives, not just at the big events. One that influences every aspect of what we do. It's a story that will continue to challenge and to stretch us as we seek to live out a pattern that's reflected in their experience. And which is also printed, interestingly enough, on the front of our bulletins. It's a pattern of listening to God's voice and living out his love. It's an invitation to come and live in a way that allows our stories to be swallowed up in his. And I don't know that I can think of a better way to emerge from this Advent series, or for that matter, to move into a new year than that. Hope you will join me. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning that when you wanted to speak to us the most clearly, you did it by coming and taking on human form and living a life among us. We are grateful for that this morning. We celebrate that. And we ask that you would grant us the grace to be able to live in such a way that we can embody what you have given us to share to those around us. We pray for this as we enter in now into a new year, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.